Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, a federal judge in Springfield rules in favor of protecting students' gender identities at Ludlow Public Schools. Plus, legislators from Tennessee to Idaho are considering bans on drag shows in public spaces. And while Pope Francis has expressed support for the LGBTQ community in the past, in perhaps his strongest statement yet, he says homosexuality is not a crime. That and more on our LGBTQ News Roundtable. Later in the show, Calling All Mentors, one of Boston's oldest youth development organizations, is on a mission to match more adult mentors with at-risk kids. During this National Mentoring Month, Big Brothers Big Sisters of Eastern Massachusetts shares stories of successful mentor-mentee relationships that have built a life-changing bond. But first, joining me... Sue O'Connell, commentator and host at New England Cable News, NBC10 Boston, and NBCLX. She is also a co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Hello, Sue. Hey, Kelly. Also with me, Jansen Wu, Executive Director of LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, or GLAD. Hi, Jansen. Happy New Year's. Happy New Year to you. And Grace Sterling Stowell, Executive Director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. Thanks for joining us, Grace. Hi, Callie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, too. Um, Well, we haven't been together in a while, clearly, since we're just expressing Happy New Year. Um, (laughs) But I want to start off uh, right in the state in Springfield with this case uh, at the Ludlow Schools. Um, So parents filed suit against the public schools about keeping their children's gender identities quiet, is how Mass Live put it, in 2021. And then recently, U.S. District Judge Mark G. Mastriani ruled that school officials did not violate the parents' civil rights when they supported the middle school students. So before you all weigh in, I want you to listen um, to both the attorney representing the parents and then hear from the students uh, via email that they sent. So first, this is attorney Andrew Beckwith representing the Ludlow parents, and he told Western Mass News the parents of children who changed their pronouns weren't immediately notified by the school. The school is actively hiding information about uh, how students are self-identifying, what names they want to be used as. In this case, the school did it not only without the parents' permission, um, but without the parents' even knowing about it. And when the parents did discover it and told the school that they were not to change the kids' names, the school kept doing it. Okay. So now one of the court documents is an email sent by a student to Ludlow teachers and staff. 
This is a reporter you'll hear from Western Mass News reading it. I have an announcement to make, and I trust you guys with this information. I am genderqueer. It goes on to say, if you deadname me or use any pronouns I am not comfortable with, I will politely tell you. I am telling you this because I feel like I can trust you. Okay, Jensen, I'll let you start off. Um, how to consider this? Um, victory for students? Uh, privacy? Um, but again, it crosses into that parental area. So not quite sure how to, how to assess this. Well, I think it's important first to kind of, you know, look at the larger context, which is that we are in a heated political battle around whether or not students, you know, can do their jobs and create an inclusive learning environment for all students, including transgender students. And in many states like Florida, like New Hampshire, um, you know, you have legislators basically prohibiting schools and teachers from creating that inclusive learning environment uh, by forbidding any conversations or discussions around LGBTQ identities. So with that context, you know, this lawsuit in Ludlow kind of, you know, unfortunately, like the real interests in the families and the schools kind of gets lost um, and the nuance gets lost. And I think at the, you know, what's most important is that we all, you know, we all believe that parents want what's best for their kids. Parents love their kids and they're doing what they think they, is best. And schools, and, you know, a child's well-being is best advanced when schools and parents partner together, right? That's kind of kind of our kind of shared value there. Um, and then when you look at it on a case-by-case -case basis, that can look really different. For some students, um, it's not gonna be safe for them uh, to come out to their parents yet. Um, and I know for myself, when I was in high school, one of the safest adults I first came out to was one of my teachers, right? Um, but it wouldn't have been safe for me to have done that at that time to my parents. And schools need to consider that as well. Okay, now, Grace, this is right where you live. You're working with young people the whole time. I wonder if you would share what the struggle is for young people who feel as though, as Jansen has just described, they can't really tell their parents um, or some family guardian. And so they, they look someplace else to share this information and they they feel like that's that's the only outlet they have absolutely the the focus should always be on the the safety and well-being uh and emotional uh well-being of the young person and uh as young people are trying to figure out their identities or maybe clear uh who they are uh they generally know who is likely to be a safe and supportive adult to share that with. And sometimes it's not their parents. And uh, it's the job of whoever the, the adults are. And this is well borne out in the, you know, the mental health field in terms of practice and confidentiality is, is to make sure that you're, you're centering the safety and well-being of your client, and in this case, the young person. And, and so to violate confidentiality uh, in a way that would put place young people at risk is is definitely a bad practice. And uh, and again, I, I I always think that the the larger issue is what what why do the why did the young person not think that their parents were were a safe person to share? And when parents react this way uh, by pursuing litigation and making the focus on their their rights, it it loses the the focus where it should be, which is what's best for the young person. Mm. Sue, weigh in. 
Well, you know, I, I totally kind of um, sympathize with all, uh, agree with everything everyone has just said and sympathize with all sort of points of view on this. And at the same time, um, you know, the aggressive lawsuit over something uh, which I understand parents would want to know. And having had a child who had a number of issues in middle school and in high school, uh, there were a number of things that I wish I had been informed about that I wasn't, and I felt like it was my right to know. And, um, you know, these are all real life issues that parents experience. At the same time, you, you would hope as a parent that you're putting your trust in the professionals who are educating and caring for your children and let them be um, the, the safe place for your child to decide what they do and do not want to tell you. And then on the other hand, who cares what, <laughs> what, what pronoun they may or may not want to use, right? There are a whole bunch of this, you know, let kids be kids, let kids be independent, let them find their own agency. And of course, during middle school and high school and college, let them find their own path and who they want to be. Hmm. Um, Jansen, do you think this will be appealed and, and um, you know, what will be the precedent impact of this ruling? You know, unfortunately, like I said, this has become politicized, you know, in the larger context I talked about. And there are, uh, you know, opposition opponents to equality, um, Massachusetts Family Institute, Andrew Beckwith, we heard earlier, um, you know, who's also aligns with Alliance Defending Freedom, one of the largest um, anti-LGBTQ equality organizations in the country are really looking to make this a test case. Um, so I'm not optimistic uh, that this is going to get resolved. I don't you know, think the, um, the judge's order is going to be the last word. Um, but And that's a shame, right? That's a real shame because at the end of the day, this should be a conversation between schools, parents, and teachers um, and, and students about what's, how to best protect um, the well-being of children. And in the context of litigation, that's just not possible. Well, somebody who can be the last word, at least in her state, is a new governor, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Some people may remember her um, being the press secretary for President Trump. Um, she's in her early days in office, and one of the, the bills that she signed um, restricts the use of the term Latinx. Um, she says she will not pr permit the government using culturally insensitive words she said that while signing the order, which seems a bit ironic, but whatever. Um, and um, she um, stands on some research that says it's not widely used. You know, that's up for debate. Anyway, I bring this up because the log cabin Republicans, and they represent the LGBTQ members of the party, praise the order. Um, and one of their members said that Latinx is just another misguided product of the modern left's relentless obsession with stripping gender from American life, an obsession that LGBT conservatives fight back, back against daily. Now, in the scheme of things, obviously, Latinx folks have more to say about it, but I'm curious about what you think about their take that this is an attempt to strip gender. Well, you know, this this whole Latinx thing always entertains me, as does every time any community or constituency or generation of a constituency wants to change the name of their group or how they're represented in their group. This is always the exact same backlash that everyone experiences. It's a universal, I think, experience that everyone has. So having said that, um, I also think the log cabin folks are, are missing the point again of evolution of language and how it's, we, we don't talk the same way or speak the same way 
or use the same words we did five years ago, 20 years ago, 100 years ago. So uh, they, they've got a, a heck of a nerve kind of weighing in about the evolution of language where the members of their own community um, are, are indeed able to take advantage of how they have been defined over the years and defining themselves. And I would say, Kelly, you know, after, after the log cabiners endorsed Donald Trump, I'm not really sure they have very much credibility in almost any, any realm, except um, in, in, actually, I was going to say, except the Republican Party, but I don't even think they're really welcome there either. So I think they're just finding something to latch on to so that we'll talk about them. Well, Ron, round robin from Grace and Jansen, do you think their point about stripping gender has any legs to um, buttress their argument? Yeah, I certainly don't. I mean, I, I think uh, I agree with Sue. It feels like the the, Repub- the, the log cabin Republicans uh, don't don't have much support from either the the left or the right, and uh, are just trying to find something that they can they can you know make a statement on that's controversial, perhaps. But you know, one of the basic tenets of any socially just movement is the right for communities to self-identify. And so as language, you know, as language evolves, communities evolve and and sometimes there are generational splits. And so the, the notion that that needed to be weighed in, you know, to have a governor of a state weigh in on that and pass any kind of ordinance around it is just uh, absurd. Um, do you want to weigh in, Jansen? Sure. I mean, you know, kind of just zooming out again, I mean, the question of whether or not Latinx is a term that, you know, should be more widely adopted or not. I mean, that's a conversation for the Latino, Latina, Latinx community to have that includes all the members of that community, including LGBTQ folks. Um, I know for myself, um, you know, I make a decision about which word to use based upon who I'm talking to, um, based upon what will make them feel most included and seen, because uh, that's how, you know, I think effective communication works. Um, but Again, if we zoom out, the political context is, and I know we'll be talking about this more in a second, um, an all-out attack on trans rights that is being fueled and motivated for political power, right? And it's, you know, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, does she really care about this or not? I don't know, but I know for sure she is scoring some political points and capital with her base, and that is the primary motivation for her to do this. And I think that's a real shame because that's not really serving anybody other than herself. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Sue O'Connell, commentator and host at New England Cable News, NBC10 Boston and NBC LX. Jansen Wu, executive director of LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders. And Grace Sterling Stowell, executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth. We're discussing the latest LGBTQ stories you should know. Well... Um, A lot of people feel very strongly about uh, wanting to ban public drag shows, meaning drag shows in public spaces, to be specific. Um, Not talking about people going into a club that is open to the public, but in public spaces, like outside at parks or whatever. This appears to have gotten legs in Idaho, um, where conservatives are pushing to ban these public drag shows. This is after um, some of the folks who were offended witnessed some activities during Pride activities. So let's, let's take a listen to 
Blaine Kanzati of the Idaho Family Policy Center. He told NPR he wants state legislation to ban all of these shows. When you realize that drag is inherently sexual to begin with, you have a biological male who's impersonating the sexual characteristics of a woman, doing provocative dancing, you know, simulating masturbation and grabbing their genitals. So even though conservatives in Idaho are pushing to ban public drag shows, Dugan Jackman, event director for Boise, Idaho's popular queer nightclub, The Balcony, told NPR that Idaho has made huge progress in gay acceptance. It is funny because I, everyone has their idea of Idaho, and it, there, it, it is that way to a point. When I first moved here, I was scared to walk down the street with my husband holding his hand, and now I, I don't really give a I, I don't care who sees me hold my husband's hand. I don't see who sees me wear nail polish or who knows that I'm queer. All right, so here we have a scenario where um, a guy with popular queer nightclub says more acceptance, but there is a huge move to ban public drag shows, and we should say not only in Idaho— um, it's happening in Pennsylvania uh, and other states. So what do you think, Sue? Milton Berle and Flip Wilson are just completely turning over in their graves right now, right? I mean, it's like, how are they going to define drag, first of all, right? If I show up and I'm, uh, you know, at a bandstand in a public park and I'm wearing a tie, is that drag? Uh, is a performance by a Shakespeare play where, you know, maybe someone is, a male is playing a female like they used to in the olden days is, is, is that drag? It's, you know, to every single story we've basically been talking about and to Jansen's point, I'm sure he's about to make in a minute, you know, this is just political theater on the backs of uh, folks who are, are at the most vulnerable in our communities. Well, I do want to point out that in, uh, on, on the national front, the Republican lawmakers have uh, pitched a bill called Stop the Sexualization of Children's Act. Um, this was by Representative Mike Johnson from Louisiana. More than 30 House Republicans signed on, and they want the bill to prohibit federal funds from being used to promote what they say is sexually oriented materials. And this specifically is targeting storytime drag hours that in some communities, including here in Boston, um, performers in drag do story time uh, with kids. And, you know, they have question and answers and the, the books as are, you know, age appropriate. But a lot of people do not like that. And so that's a part of this whole thing. So now, Jansen, you can respond. You know, just building on what Sue was saying, I mean, it's not just political grandstanding, you know, similar to the point I made earlier, but it's political grandstanding in the context of rising um, threats from neo-nationalist neo groups, um, specifically targeting um, pride, specifically targeting drag queen story hours. Even here uh, in Massachusetts, um, we have seen a number of neo-Nazi protests outside drag queen story hours um, in places as progressive like Jamaica Plain in Boston. Um, so these bills, while we can kind of say, wow, that's, you know, out of left field, ridiculous, a problem that's being created for political points, all true, but it has consequences and it has consequences for the safety of our community. So Grace, you're not a psychologist, but I want to ask you uh, the same question, but in this way. Um, if you say you're, first, with regard to banning um, the drag shows in public spaces, is this about a kind of return to invisibility that a lot of 
gay, lesbian, transgender people feel they had to fight for or still fight against rather and are still fighting against. Um, and, you know, there has been some great movement in that where people don't feel invisible um, in many arenas. But I wonder when, because it's public spaces for some of these local um, laws, if that if that struck you as as being part of that. Well, absolutely. I mean, that's the intent, right? They they want LGBT and especially T people to go away, and and so all of these coordinated attacks, um, and and they're both absurd and frightening. You know, it is not true that that drag is inherently sexualized, uh, se- sexualizing, and it's not true that that this kind of behavior that was described uh, happens as part of any kind of drag queen story hour with children, uh, and they know that. And so they're they're not worried about facts. They're they're really trying to use this as a wedge to attack uh, certainly for first trans and non-binary and gender non-conforming folks, uh, but ultimately LGBT folks entirely. And 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 that is the goal. Hmm. And Callie, yeah. if I could just yes. add, you mm-hmm. know, most states and many municipalities already have prohibitions on lewd conduct in public. Mm-hmm. So why is this necessary other than to target an already vulnerable minority? Mm-hmm. So if if uh, uh, Blaine Kanzadi um, felt that there was some lewd behavior, he could have moved in a different way to exhibit that particular scenario as opposed to assuming that it's associated with everybody in pride. Exactly. Right. You know, he, he could also just focus on toddler beauty pageants. How about that? For protecting children from being sexualized at an early age. I mean, you know. Well, that's a good point as well. Um, now, a piece that you uh, just raised is to bring our attention to again uh, by The Globe, um, Jansen, about the transgender worker, speaking of T, as Grace just said, denied health care um, who has filed a discrimination complaint. And the particular worker, Lillian Bernier, works as a machinist at a company called TurboCam. And it happens to be a a company that is faith-based. And so it's hard for me, it's hard to figure out how much of that has plays a part of this discussion. But um, she is filing suit against the kind of other laws and regulations that have come up in other states that we've talked about here, but as we need to continue say, are continuing to be proposed in many states that would deny health care for folks um, who are transgender. Where does this fall on the spectrum of what feels like a massive number of um, legislative, local state legislative moves um, supporting this kind of of um, denial? I would say, I guess that's the best way to put it, Jansen. I mean, I would put this on the fairly serious side of the spectrum because if you know Turbo Cam Lillian's employer, uh, which is represented by First Liberty. Uh, which is um, one of the you know primary kind of uh, extreme religious right organizations. Um, they uh, represented the football coach in the prayer case last U.S. Supreme Court term. Um, so this again is a test case that the religious right want to use to get to the U.S. Supreme Court to constitutionalize these uh, these uh, you know the right to you know withhold equal benefits to employees based upon religious objections. So. You know, I mean, this could potentially impact, impact the entire country. Uh, GLAD is representing Lillian Bernier in this lawsuit. Um, and, you know, Lillian is just asking for the same thing that all of her, you know, co-workers get, which is 
you know, equal coverage for medically necessary treatment, including gender transition healthcare. And Turbo Cam, her employer, um, is saying that violates um, kind of our religious beliefs. Um, you know, this is in kind of the next step, uh, you know, um, after, you know, the types of arguments we've seen earlier at the U.S. Supreme Court around bakers refusing to sell cakes or now in the pending 303 creative case of the U.S. Supreme Court, the website designer who refuses, who wants to refuse to create a, a wedding website for same-sex couples. And if you remember the arguments for those cases, you know, the um, other side has always been like, we like LGBTQ people, we just don't, we think marriage is between one man and one woman. And I think this new lawsuit, where it's really about a person's identity and ability to live authentically as who they are, kind of really shows that what they were saying before was was bogus. Um, and that really their, their entire project uh, is to exclude protections for LGBTQ people, period, um, um, based upon religious or free speech arguments. Mm, Grace. As we're having the conversation, I'm just reflecting on the the human cost of all of this. Uh, you know, trans and non-binary people, especially trans people of color, are are among the most marginalized, the most targeted, and most stigmatized, and and always have been. And now, in the in this age of social media and and political polariz polarization, uh, we are being targeted in very specific ways and very public ways by by uh, political leaders across the country. And I, I just think of the human cost. I think of you know we're just trying to live our lives. We're just trying. I'm I'm a 65 year old queer trans woman, and I think of what I've experienced in my life. And all of us are trying to live our live our lives go to school, work, live, uh, have friends, relationships, and in, in this backdrop of a very specific uh, war on who we are. And so uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of sitting with the, the human cost of that and working with young people, and we knew this would happen, is that the, years into this now of this kind of target attack is taking its toll on the mental health and well-being of young people. And even in a state like Massachusetts, because it is happening here too, um, and, and how do you grow up and, and live your life uh, in, in, with all of this happening? Uh, and, and the focus in such a negative way on who you are. Sue. Yeah, I, I want to broaden the conversation a little bit on, um, on TurboCam as well uh, for folks to understand that they're, they're a, they have a self-funded insurance company, right? right? So they're, not, they're, they're paying for these things themselves and they're not the only company that does this. And when same-sex marriage uh, became the law in the state of Massachusetts. There were a couple of Massachusetts companies who were able to avoid giving benefits to same-sex married couples, legally married couples, because they self-funded their insurance. And this doesn't just impact people who are transgender. It impacts all sorts of people across the country who are working for companies who want to impose their religious beliefs on their employees and want to do that via the health insurance um, that they offer and the, uh, the procedures that they will or will not cover. So when we're talking about these religious liberty sorts of issues, uh, they have a broader impact than just on the LGBTQ community plus community. So you know when you hear us talk about these things, it's always a good idea to wonder how, if you're not a member of the community we're talking about, how this might impact you if you work for one of these self-funded companies that portrays themselves as a you know Christian or religious company uh, following their own morals when it comes to your health care. Hmm. Well, let me move to uh, some news that came out recently that 
seem to be surprising for a lot of folks. Um, Last week, Pope Francis told the Associated Press that homosexuality is not a crime. Let's take a listen. Ser homosexual no es un delito. No es un delito. Sí, pero es pecado. Bueno, primero, distingamos pecado por delito. Now, just to be clear, he says not a crime. Yes, it's a sin, but let's make the distinction between sin and a crime. But that seems like progress to the ears of many. What say you, Jansen? <laughs> I have a topic I feel least equipped to opine on. Um, uh, what I will say, um, and I'm going to stay far away from, you know, Catholic doctrine or teachings or anything like that, um, is that the journey that the Pope is on is the same journey that so many Americans have been on. And our pace may be at different speeds, um, but I applaud this. I think it's a really positive step. Um, I imagine there's many folks, including Catholic LGBTQ folks um, who wish he had gone further. And what I would say is you have the opening here, right, to continue that conversation. Um, and let's also recognize that the Catholic Church has done incredible, incredible harm to the LGBTQ community over decades and decades and decades. Grace? Having not been raised Catholic, I'd also say I'm not equipped to kind of weigh in on Catholic doctrine, but um, but I but whenever a public figure uh, uh, speaks out in in a way that is at least somewhat supportive, that's a good thing. And uh, and the Catholic Church has a lot to answer for for our community, and so they have a long way to go before we can we can even feel like they have reached that. But this is a step. Sue. Well, having been raised Roman Catholic, I guess I'm the expert on this. So no, I'm, um, I will say it's been quite a week when, you know, Beyonce, who is an icon to the LGBTQ community, plays uh, Dubai, where you can be arrested for being gay. And the Pope comes out and says it's not a crime anymore. So um, it's definitely uh, a kind of a, a, another whiplash uh, moment. But, you know, this is, I agree with everything just said, and this is very important, um, the Pope's statement, especially in um, Roman Catholic communities and countries and uh, where being being gay is, is, is indeed a crime and a crime punishable uh, in the most atrocious ways. So uh, it is a step forward. Obviously, the Pope's also against the death penalty, and that doesn't really get much traction in the United States either. But it is progress, slow progress, but progress nonetheless. Okay, this is really quick. But when you speak of icons, there's no bigger one in media anyway than ABC's Robin Roberts. She announced she was planning to marry her longtime partner. Here she is. I'm hesitating because I haven't said it out loud yet. Say it out loud. Oh, okay, uh, I'm saying yes to marriage. I'm saying yes to marriage. We're getting married this year. Yes, okay. And it's something we have talked about, but we had put it off. She became ill, but it was just, and it is saying yes to that in that You're next chapter. It. Yes. I'm, uh, she was talking to best-selling author Gabby Bernstein. What's the impact of someone like Robin Roberts? Um, really, I mean, she's been out recently, but you know, to say that she's getting married, um, Sue. It's huge. I mean, this is a journey. Watching her journey, being able to be her authentic self uh, through the years. Remember, you know, uh, uh, during the the Obama same sex marriage discussions. I don't believe she was out at that time. Um, and then during her, her illness, uh, uh, her, her partner was almost absent from the public view, which of course is her prerogative and everyone's coming out journey is their own. But you know, that's a result of society pressure, pressure uh, on, on uh, same-sex couples. So 
Uh, I'm thrilled that she's at a, a point where she can be this icon and be this open and, and, and be her honest and happy self around it. Grace. I think it's so exciting and so wonderful. I've, I've uh, watched Robin Roberts for years and uh, uh, see her progress, uh, you know, as a woman, as a black woman, as a queer black woman, and uh, and as well as her, you know, public um, uh, discussion of her own health issues. And so, you know, I, I think it's wonderful. Jansen. I mean, my only question is, where's my wedding invitation, Rob? Robin? <laughs> uh, congratulations to her um, and her fiance. I mean, it's just so wonderful. She is the face of, of good and many America in so many ways that just reaches so many households, millions across the country. And to have this normalized um, is just incredibly impactful. So congratulations to Robin. I want to thank you all for joining me today. Thank it's you, been a pleasure. Glad to be here. Sue O'Connell is a commentator and host at New England Cable News, NBC10 Boston, and NBC LX. She's also a co-publisher of Bay Windows and the South End News. Jansen Wu is the executive director of LGBTQ Legal Advocates and Defenders, or GLAD, and Grace Sterling Stowell, executive director of the Boston Alliance of Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Transgender, Queer Youth, or Bagley. Coming up. The social web of at-risk youth is often frayed, which can lead to a lack of stable and meaningful relationships. The pandemic only made matters worse. But through mentoring, one local organization has provided vital social interaction by successfully connecting adult volunteers with young students across Massachusetts. The power of mentoring, especially for at-risk kids. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. <laughs> 